Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. Checking in about food allergies and introducing allergenic foods. And have you done peanut with your baby yet? Well, intact nuts and thick globs of nut butters like peanut butter are choking hazards for babies, but we want to get that peanut protein into your baby early and often in order to help lower the risk of peanut allergy down the road. My absolute favorite way to introduce peanuts for babies is using the Puffworks Baby Peanut Puffs. So When you hear puffs, like you're probably like, oh, those starchy little puff things. Like, no, no, no. Not the little ones that earlier eaters can't pick up. Those kind of crappy puffs from the store that have added sugar and refined grains and lots of salt. Uh uh. The Puffworks baby peanut puffs have no added sugar. They have just a smidge of sodium for preservatives, and they are the perfect size for baby led weaning. They're about the size of your adult pinky finger. So, you can, baby can pick them up, self-feed them, but they're so soft that they dissolve in your baby's mouth so you can introduce these peanut puffs even before your baby has teeth. Puffworks also makes a baby almond puff for the safe introduction of a separate allergenic food category. That's tree nuts. And now, finally, Puffworks put out a combo case. So it's half baby peanut and half baby almond. So if you want to grab one case, then you can knock out two new allergenic foods. We do these on different days, though. These are just the no-stress, low-mess way to get peanut and tree nut out of the way. So you can get 15% off everything at puffworks.com when you use the affiliate discount code BLWPOD. That's a new code. It's BLWPOD. Use that sucker at checkout at puffworks.com and get peanut and tree nut safely out of the way. We've come so far. This whole medicalization of early feeding is not ideal. Enjoy eating with your babies and enjoy feeding them new foods and It should be fun and pleasurable and not so medicalized as we have it right now. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. All right, tell me the truth. Do food allergies freak you out when it comes to feeding your baby? I know we hear the guidance to introduce allergenic foods early and often, but when it comes down to it and you're there at the high chair with the baby and you're about to offer the shrimp in a safe form for your baby, like, are you freaking out? Because I know a lot of parents are and I don't want you to feel alone. My guest today is here to answer your most frequently asked questions and hopefully take some of the fear out of feeding these foods to your baby. My guest today is Dr. Ruchi Gupta. Dr. Gupta is a pediatrician and a researcher at Northwestern University, where she is the founding director of their Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research, CIFAR. So Dr. Gupta's team is internationally recognized for research in food allergy. They published the prevalence data, for example, of pediatric allergy in the U.S. So when you hear, okay, One in 13 kids or one in 10 children, five and under, have food allergy. It's her team that did those publications. 
They also work on research that helps to characterize the economic impact of food allergies and then also to identify disparities in access to care and outcomes among food allergy and asthma patients. Dr. Gupta is internationally renowned in the food allergy research community. She sits on numerous committees that establish international guidelines. She's published over 140 research papers on food allergy. And she's also a book author. So Dr. Gupta recently published a lay book called Food Without Fear, Identify, Prevent, and Treat Food Allergies, Intolerances, and Sensitivities. So today she's joining us to answer some of your most frequently asked questions about food allergies for babies. So with no further ado, here is Dr. Ruchi Gupta. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Katie. All right, before we get started talking about food allergies in infancy, could you share a little bit about your background and how you came to specialize in food allergies in this really unique area of medicine? So I am a pediatrician and researcher. I've been at Northwestern and Chicago and Lurie Children's for 17 years. I came to Northwestern 17 years ago and met a family who had two young kids with food allergies. And they were so passionate about this. And I realized so little was known about food allergies We didn't even know how many people have food allergies or what types. So I got my master's in public health right before this, did outcomes research and thought, maybe I can help in this space. So I started working in it. We started learning about 8% of kids, one in 13 have food allergies. I got deeper, deeper involved. And then one day my four-year-old son was playing with my one-year-old daughter and uh, eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, touched her. She broke out in hives, threw up and I became a parent of a child with food allergies. Um, So now it's my 24-7. I have a child with food allergies. I do research on it and I see patients with it. Wow, that's so fascinating. You are really like living the entire, (laughs) I wouldn't say (laughs) the food allergy dream, but certainly the right person to be talking about. And before we get to these frequently asked questions about food allergies, I wanted to ask about your new book that's called Food Without Fear, How to Identify, Prevent, and Treat Food Allergies, Intolerances, and Sensitivities. Why did you call it food without fear? People who live with food conditions, a lot of times fear that food, right? Like, so you are eating every food and you're fearing that food may be in it. And it's very stressful and anxiety provoking on an everyday, every meal basis. And so the goal of this book, and a lot of times, a lot of those reactions, people have not gotten it fully diagnosed or or know what kind of treatments are out there. So the point of making it food without fear is we want to empower people to be able to live their best life with whatever they have and really understand what food condition they have, how to best manage it, take control of it, and potentially treat it. So just want people to live without fear, you know, every single day possible. So parents hear a lot about the importance for introducing allergenic foods early and often to help prevent food allergy. And we've done tons of education here on the podcast about how to do that safely using baby led weaning. Could you speak a little bit to prevalence? You mentioned that one in 13 kids have food allergy, but how common are food allergies in babies under 12 months of age? Great question. Under 12 months. So that early period, zero to five, they're very Common. That's the most prevalent age, but under 12 months, it's challenging. You know, our data found the top allergens under that age are typically milk and egg, right? Because those are the foods they're eating or drinking, you know, at that young age. And that's what you identify because they don't come in contact with a lot of the other foods, you know, the peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, fin fish later, we see them happening later. So they may have them under 12 months, but they haven't been identified yet. So I like to think more around that zero to five 
age group when they're starting to try these foods for the first time. And then you realize, oh my gosh, you know, they have an, a food allergy to a specific, you know, shellfish, for example. We see it later because most babies don't eat shellfish, right? So, so I can't give you an exact under 12 months, but I can tell you in that early time, that zero to five, it's about 10%. So experts say that an allergic reaction to a food will usually occur on the second or the subsequent exposure, but not the first time the baby is exposed to the potentially allergenic food protein. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, that is confusing for so many families. So your child may have had it for the first time and have an allergic reaction. They may also have been exposed to it through another way. So we talk a lot about being exposed to the protein through your skin, and that could be the first time and that your, your baby is exposed to that food protein. And that actually launches a different immune pathway, a more allergenic food immune pathway. So the first time you orally give it to them, they may have a reaction. But sometimes, and this is what I really want to really push is sometimes people will introduce peanut products like peanut butter to their baby once and say, oh, great, they didn't react. And then they forget about it. And then they don't introduce it. And then three months later, they have a peanut butter and jelly or something, and then they have a a full-blown reaction. So it's also so important that if you introduce it once, no reaction, you got to keep it in their diet. Two or three times a week, two teaspoons each meal. Can I ask about the two teaspoons per meal? Like, what is that based on? So the two teaspoons of peanut butter. So we typically say two teaspoons of peanut butter mixed with about the same amount of water, breast milk or formula or whatever, applesauce. So it's not so sticky. And then that is about the amount they need per meal. And it doesn't have to be exact, but that's based on the LEAP study. And the LEAP study found that two grams, it's about two grams, two grams three times a week is what they use. So we say two grams at least two to three times a week. But that's one particular study. There's nothing to say that doing any more or any less grams of peanut protein would be more or less protective. Like we really don't know that, right? We don't know that. And that's such a good point. But because we know that amount is, that's all we have to base it on. We're doing a large study in Chicago. So hopefully we'll have better answers in a couple of years. It is confusing for parents when they hear early and often they want to be like, all right, how often, how much? Tell me the exact number of grams. And they're like, I hate to tell you that research just isn't out there, but we do know that one and done does not cut it. And so we do need to be reintroducing that as you point out. Now, we know that the guidance when we're talking about peanut allergy suggests that babies who are at high risk for peanut allergy are those with established egg allergy and or severe eczema. And so as soon as parents hear eczema and then not the severe qualifier there, they tend to overestimate their baby's risk for peanut allergy because every baby has some degree of eczema, right? So could you speak a little bit about the relationship between eczema and food allergy risk? And then what is severe eczema? Yes, this is so important. Okay, so the reason we found that eczema is a risk factor, the number one risk factor for babies is what we talked about just now. So if you have broken skin, if your baby has broken skin, then they're somewhat compromised, right? So food proteins could get in through their skin And then, as I said, the immune pathway takes a different route. So one thing is, if your child has eczema, mild, moderate, severe, protect their skin. Get to your pediatrician or your dermatologist or whoever and get that skin protected. You know, there are great things we can do for eczema. Now, what is severe eczema and when do you know your infant's at risk? So if your baby has eczema, a significant amount, like on their arms, legs, trunk, back, you know, you see it patches everywhere, not just a small patch on their hand or something. That's important. Now, I would actually say if your baby has any eczema, 
take them to their doctor and get it diagnosed. Because what we found is severe eczema is a risk factor, the biggest risk factor, but even moderate eczema is a little bit more of a risk factor and mild is, you know, a smaller, but like all eczema needs to be treated and evaluated. But severe eczema, you know, more body surface area, deeper, darker red, excoriate, or, you know, like red, itchy, irritable. If you just see them red around their body, that is severe eczema. Yeah, I always encourage parents to also look at pictures of severe eczema because sometimes you'll see a baby with like a tiny little patch and the mom's like, do you see this? I'm like, no, I don't even see that. Like, I can't even see that. Like severe eczema, like it is severe, it is painful. The child is usually already being treated for it as far as management goes. But what I want parents to know is that not all cases of eczema are severe eczema. And you made a very important point that while it elevates risk, it does not automatically put your baby in the high risk category. So yes, having eczema increases risk, but I don't want parents to be like, well, my baby's high risk for peanut. And so now I have to follow the different protocols for high risk for peanut because they don't. Because only a small percentage of the population is actually in the high risk for peanut allergy category. Yeah, less than 5% probably. You know, so the majority of families can feed their babies peanut products early and not worry about it. But for that small percentage, they're the most, most at risk. We need to get them help right away. So if you think your baby has severe eczema, get in early, four months, get to an allergist, get tested. Because the earlier we start in those high-risk babies, what we're finding is the better we can prevent. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit betterhelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So you have done some work about racial inequalities in food allergy. And one of the newer publications of yours that I was looking at ahead of this interview is titled, African-American children are more likely to be allergic to shellfish and finfish. And I was curious what you guys found out. Why is that? Yeah, so different groups, right? Racial, ethnic groups will have different top allergens, a lot of different things. But what I wanna really point out with that is we have been looking very closely at racial and ethnic differences. And what we are finding is food allergy prevalence is actually higher in Black infants and Latinx. And so we need to really be aware of that. As families, you know, it can occur. And the allergens we're seeing are different. So we are seeing more shellfish, finfish in Black children. And we are seeing, like, say, more tree nuts in Asian children. And a lot of times we think this may be because of dietary habits. You know, are you catching these things because that is prominent in the diet versus are you higher in terms of your allergenicity? So I do think it's important. I also think it's important to point out 
when we talk about eczema, it looks different in different populations, right? So you have to make sure you understand what it looks like. So I really like that you encourage people to go and look at pictures. And we have pictures that we can share in different skin colors to really show what eczema looks like. And then the third thing with racial disparities is we need to make sure that the new guidelines, things like this are getting to everyone, you know, and making sure that all families can access, you know, the care that they need. And I think that's a huge problem. We know so many of our parents are like, listen, my doctor's not even talking about this. And I know there's a lot of things that pediatricians need to do, especially the six month appointment. But even before that, you know, the three month, four month appointment talking about, listen, when you do start solid foods, when your baby turns six months of age and is sitting relatively unassisted and showing the other reliable signs of readiness to eat, early introduction of allergenic foods does help prevent food allergy. And I know there's some really staggering data out there about how many pediatricians are not even broaching this topic. And I think a lot of it has to do with their own sometimes challenges interpreting the data. So I really appreciate the work that you and your team do, which like to help kind of simplify for practitioners how important this is and how we can talk to parents about it in ways that they can understand and actually implement because we need babies eating these foods at home. We don't need to over-medicalize it. We don't need to be at the ER. We don't need it to be doing stick packs and supplements and expensive subscription programs. Babies can eat food and they need to eat food-based versions of these allergenic foods. That's right. Oh my goodness. You know, we just did a study of, and I am a pediatrician. I understand this every day. You know, it's so many things you have to go over at that four and six month visit. So how do you incorporate this into your discussion? So we have a large NIH study going right now to, to figure that out. And so we're incorporating it into their electronic medical record. We have handouts, really great handouts, you know, that pediatricians can just give their families. But what we found is also that caregivers, parents, reported, 70% reported, they haven't heard of us. And this was just in the beginning of 2021. You know, we did this study of 4,000 caregivers and 70% said they had never heard of early introduction and the value of it. So the information is not getting out to the families. You know, either the pediatrician is talking about it, but, you know, we talk about a hundred things and you can't remember all of them at those very, very short visits or the caregiver just never got the information. So having things like this are so critical to get it straight to the people who need it. And if I may, for your NIH study, if you're adding another layer of it, is turning to pediatric dietitians. This is what pediatric dietitians do. They're already existent in your healthcare systems where all of these pediatricians are giving out information to lean on them and their expertise to teach parents safe ways to introduce food-based versions of these foods that is something that the dietitian has time to do that they are trained to do and should be doing to fill in the gap here where, to be honest, the pediatricians don't have time. And you and I both know that, you know, more than 90% of physicians in this country have never taken a dedicated nutrition class. And so when parents go to their pediatrician and ask questions about nutrition, to be honest, most of the time, the doctor has no formal training in that. We just did a huge baby led weaning summit with 17 different leading feeding experts from around the world. And there was a lot of pediatricians who wrote and said, that's the most nutrition education I've ever had. I said, of course it is, because it's not required in graduate medical education. And so we end up with a lot of pediatricians who might be interested in nutrition, but certainly not qualified to teach about it. But that's what dietitians can do. And they are an important resource that pediatricians should be leaning on. Absolutely. Oh, I 100% agree. We have three dietitians on our team and I learn every single day. So such a critical resource. We need more of them and we need more access to them. Is there anything that a mom can do during pregnancy to protect against food allergy in her unborn baby? This is so important. I have this comic in one of our books where one mom says, you know, I ate this during pregnancy. That's why my kid has food allergies. And the other one says, I didn't eat this during pregnancy. That's why my kid has food allergies. So it, it goes back to the guilt we always feel of what we're doing and what can we do. 
What I can tell you is there is no data saying you should avoid foods during pregnancy to protect your child from having a food allergy. So actually the only data, limited data we have, a lot of people are doing research on this, but the limited data we have says it could benefit, but it's not really strong data. So I encourage pregnant moms to eat whatever they are craving and not worry about it impacting food allergy. We really don't know if it helps to eat it, but it's leaning in that direction, but it it definitely doesn't hurt. And also for parents, it's so important to know that there's nothing that you did that caused this child's food allergy. So much of food allergy risk is out of our hands. However, the one thing that we can control is the timeline for the introduction of allergenic foods. So if you are hearing this, but between the time your baby is six and 11 months of age, it's so important that you be introducing those allergenic foods. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Can't stress that enough. That is the one piece of data we have for prevention. So introduce peanut products early, kind of went over how, get it into their diet, you know, not their first food, of course, but early in that six month period. And if your baby is high risk, get them to an allergist at four months, even introducing earlier, getting it in their diet may truly prevent their allergy. And as far as the other foods go, you know, there is no data on it. Like I said, we're doing a large study to look at the other foods, but we do in encourage a diverse diet. I think it's so important. So if you're comfortable introducing some of the other allergenic foods, do it early in life. And I think our mutual friend and colleague, Karina Venter, is doing such important work on helping to define diet diversity because we hear this term, and I teach a 100 first foods approach where we teach parents how to introduce their babies to 100 different foods before the time they turn one. People say, well, what's the deal with 100? Is it a magical number? No, certainly not. But we know that the greater the variety of foods and flavors and tastes and textures that babies are exposed to early and often, the more likely it is to prevent picky eating, to prevent food allergies, to help you raise an independent eater, all these things that we want. And so Karina's group is really looking at the numbers, you know, for every new allergenic food that you introduce, what percent reduction in food allergy risk do we see? Like we need to have these quantifiable numbers and all the data points to more is better. So the greater the number of foods you can do, including the allergenic foods, it does so much for your child throughout the course of their lifetime. Yes. Karina is one of my closest colleagues ever, and she's working on this large study with us. So Anything she says, I 100% agree with. But I will say that the guidelines right now, this whole introduce three to five days, that's something I've been really pushing and sounds like you have too against because there's no data showing waiting five days between introducing a new food is beneficial in any way. And so when we did a survey of pediatricians, pediatricians even told us they don't really recommend that. They've been recommending at least a day or two. So Again, what you're doing is so critical, like the 100 foods and diversifying the diet and getting new foods into your babies. I mean, if you think about how we started, right? You just, whatever you're eating, you kind of smush in your mouth, get the microbiome, give it to your baby, you know? And so we've come so far. And like you mentioned earlier, this whole medicalization of early feeding is not ideal. Enjoy eating with your babies and enjoy feeding them new foods. And it should be fun and pleasurable and not so medicalized as we have it right now. So regarding the three to five day wait, I mean, this is a huge pain point because still in American Academy of Pediatric Publications coming out this year, it says wait a few days between new foods. And I think it's so important that the leaders in feeding and food allergy are out there saying, listen, there's absolutely no data to support waiting three to five days between new foods. And I was curious just to your thoughts or to hear your thoughts, because if we know the vast majority of allergic reactions to food occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following the ingestion of food, where in the world is this three to five day wait thing coming from? Like babies cannot achieve diet diversity that they need if we're waiting five days between introducing new foods. And how can we get rid of it is my bigger question. Well, if you figure that out, I'm ready to serve on that committee with you right beside you because 
we do need to get rid of it. And there is no data. You know, when we did this study with pediatricians, we searched literature, we went to books, we were trying to find anything to show the value of waiting such a long period of time. And we couldn't find anything. I don't know if it was from industry when we started bottling foods and, and you know, it took a couple of days to finish a bottle. I don't know where it came from or who started it, but no data that we can find. So totally with you, allergenic reactions happen really quickly. So waiting is not to prevent an allergic reaction. And, and the common allergens are not like sweet potatoes and avocado and bananas and applesauce. You know, that's just not what kids tend to react to. So feel comfortable introducing new foods more frequently, at least daily, you know, if not every other day, if you're nervous. But again, no medicalization. I mean, we used to introduce foods with multiple spices and, and ingredients in it to babies. Whatever you were eating, we didn't have the opportunity to introduce single food items in the past. And so, yes, get back to basics. So when I get by forgetting three to five days between food, like entire movement up and supported by the AAP, and we're educating pediatricians about not saying that. And I've actually done work even at UCSF with the medical students being like, who is whispering in your guy's ear this whole like wait three to five days? Like, I don't know. We just learned it in medical school. It's like, yeah, but it's not actually based in any research. And we know like a lot of problems stem from that, this passing down kind of these old wives tales for feeding. And there are still parents out there who come to me and say, you know, my pediatrician told me to wait until one to feed egg white. I'm like, are you serious? That is 20 year old guidance that you are getting from your pediatrician. We want to be doing egg white where the protein is at six months of age. And by waiting that long, you're actually increasing your baby's risk of food allergies. So sometimes these things that might sound harmless, we just, we say them and throw them out there, especially as practitioners, parents take them to heart. And if they actually put them in practice, we could be getting the opposite of the intended effect. We want you to introduce more foods more quickly, and we want you to do those allergenic ones earlier as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes. And you're exactly right. I mean, we, we asked pediatricians, we said, why do you do this? That's what I was taught, right? It's just passed down. That's exactly where it came from. And so we do need to break that cycle. I'm with you and, and switch it back to faster. You know, the only other thing I can think of is that maybe it came out of fear. You know, as we saw this food allergy prevalence climb, maybe people got scared and they're like, slow it down. You know, we don't know what's going on, but just like with peanut introduction, I mean, that's what we did. We said, don't introduce peanuts till age three. And then the data came back around to say, actually, that wasn't the right thing to do, you know? And so maybe the same with us. So I'm in for your movement. I'm right there. Now, I know you've also done research on clinicians' perception and understanding of food allergies in different parts of the world, including India. So I'm curious, how do prevalent rates differ in other regions outside of the United States? And do you think that's due to reporting differences? in different cultures in different countries, or is it differences in the diversity of infant diets and their tendency to introduce or not introduce allergenic foods early? This is very interesting because if you look around the world, you do see higher rates of food allergy in developed countries, right? Now, is that because we have the data there? We know, you know, in Australia and Europe, they're aware and they're looking at these numbers versus more rural areas, right? We don't have great data. So, one thing everyone always asks is, is this because we are more aware? Like, are we now getting access to care? We have a term for food allergies. You know, we call it something. 
And a lot of parts of the world, you know, if you eat something and have a negative reaction, you just take it out of your diet. And even in the U.S., we're finding a lot of people may eat a food and have a reaction and then they just take it out of their diet, but they never go to see a doctor, right? They never get to the doctor. They just remove it. So the other thing we're seeing is, yes, to your point, even in places like India, if you look at rural India versus urban centers, urban centers are really similar, right? Their babies are eating one food every couple of days. They're getting more antibiotics. They're exposed to a much larger variety. Whereas in rural areas, it's kind of back to the basics. And so we see less of it in rural areas than urban areas. And a lot of those factors may play a role. When we talk about why food allergies are happening, we talk so much about the microbiome now, right? So like what changes your microbiome? Again, C-sections, antibiotics, all these new things that happened over time to impact our microbiome and that good bacteria along with the bad bacteria. Okay, my last question is kind of a doozy. Sensitized versus desensitized. So when you introduce a baby to a protein, are you sensitizing the body of the protein or desensitizing it? Which one's good? What do we want? Can you break it down for us? So these words are very confusing. So a couple really important points to food allergies. So if your baby eats a food, has a negative reaction, you go to the doctor, what happens? They test them, right? They either do a blood test or they do a skin prick test. Now, if they don't know what the food is, they'll do an oral food challenge, right? Where you eat the food that you think they reacted to. And if they react again, then they have that allergy. So two things, when you have a positive test, but you're eating the food, right? So you have a positive skin prick test to egg, yet you can eat egg just fine. We call that sensitized, okay? So you're sensitized, but not allergic. What that means is your body somehow is building and making antibodies, that IgE to that specific food, but you're not having a reaction. So it is so important then that you keep it into your diet. Now, desensitization is an important word. And so when now we have treatments for food allergies, or we have one FDA approved treatment for peanut allergy. So when you go on treatment, you're desensitizing your body to that food. So you have a little bit of peanut powder, more, more, more. And as you increase the amount, you are becoming desensitized. So they are weird words. They're not direct opposites necessarily, but if you have a positive test and a negative, like actual reaction, we call you sensitized. But when we're trying to treat you, we call that desensitized. But I think also you make a really good point. It's like, there's a lot of gray area in testing. And then we had Dr. David Stukas on to talk about why there's such a high percentage of false positives in food allergy testing. And like parents wrote back like angry. Like, I don't understand why anything would get approved of a test if there's a 50% chance that it's a false positive. We said, yes, but there's like a 99% chance that when it's negative, it's believable. So that if it does come back negative, what we don't want to see is parents unnecessarily restricting or removing entire groups of foods from a baby's diet unnecessarily. But there is no black and white test for food allergy. And so obviously kind of job security for you, Dr. Gupta, there's a lot of work to be done in this area. There is. And knock on wood, I mean, there are new tests that are more accurate on the way. So I am hoping like in the next five to 10 years, we're going to have better diagnostic tests and more treatments. But also we need better education for pediatricians on how to use these because widespread blanket testing is a massive problem in just general medicine right now. Pediatricians, you know, if your baby has never reacted to a food and your doctor suggests you get tested for it, you should get a new pediatrician. And it's a travesty because there's a lot of money to be made in food allergy testing. And yet parents will do whatever their doctor recommends. Might not be that the doctor has unscrupulous 
recommendations, he just might not realize the vast amount of false positives and that testing is not black or white. And it does give, I think on many cases, parents so much more anxiety than it needs to. So again, a lot of areas for improvement. You did mention the FDA treatment for peanut allergy, and I was wondering if you could shed light on that. Who's it approved for? Is it something you've tried with your own child who's peanut allergic? Just curious. So treatments are coming up, right? So there's so many in clinical trials. There's one that's FDA approved. It's oral immunotherapy for peanut. It's called palforzia. It's peanut powder. You do it with your allergist. You start low dose and then you increase with your allergist. And that's what we call desensitized because we don't call it a cure. So it is, you're desensitizing. You still have to take the peanut on a regular basis to make your body's immune system aware of it. So that is one thing. And then that same company, along with other companies, are developing similar oral immunotherapy for other foods. So it's all coming down the pike. The other two that are really exciting is sublingual. So it's under your tongue, sublingual immunotherapy, same thing, exposing you to the protein, but under your tongue, there's a patch one that's hopefully going to be approved soon. Same thing, epicutaneous. So little bits of protein through your skin. So those are three. Then there's the biologics, which kind of block a certain part of your immune pathway that would cause the cascade, right? And so those are being tested in clinical trials right now and on their way. Then there's companies out there making vaccines for food allergies. So I really am excited that there is one out there and there's many, many more in progress. Just out of curiosity, you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but have you tried any of these with your own child? So my daughter is now 15. She had no interest in trying any of these and now she does. So you have to, it's a discussion you have to have with your own child, right? She was pretty comfortable. She's a peanut tree nut allergy and and she was living with it just fine and did not want to eat the food that has caused her so many terrible reactions, right? Because that's a little scary because you're actually, that's exactly what you're doing. Now that she's 15 and she's in high school and she wants to socialize and she wants to go out with her friends, now she is coming towards, okay, let's try this. Let's get rid of these allergies. So I have not done it yet, but we are close to ready to get started with it. So it's good timing. I would encourage everyone who is considering it to really have that discussion with your child. It depends on their stage of development and when they're ready. And then, you know, when they are, do it together because it can be scary and anxiety provoking for both the child and the parent. Well, Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for sharing all of this valuable information about food allergies with us. Can you tell our audience where we can go to learn more about your work and particularly about your book as well? Yes, of course. So the book is foodwithoutfearbook.com. And the website, it'll have like a food spectrum that you can take a look at to really better understand your food conditions. There's a survey on the website for you know, better understanding what's going on in your body. And then to learn more about our research or get some of our free resources, it's cfaar.northwestern.edu. That's our website where you'll learn a lot about our research, but we do have a lot of great resources, even for um, children in daycare or early childcare. We have great materials for you, for your providers, and, you know, just to help educate and increase awareness. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was great chatting with you. You too. Thank you so much, Katie. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Dr. Ruchi Gupta. I swear, when you find a researcher who can explain complex processes and a lot of data in simple terms that parents can understand, I'm like, come on the podcast a million more times. We brainstormed like five other episodes that we're going to try to do together. So if you guys want to check out Dr. Gupta's research, her work, her publications, including some of the publications that were mentioned in today's episode, 
And to find out where you can get her book, Food Without Fear, head to the show notes page for this episode, which is at blwpodcast.com forward slash 180. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.